Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Faith Christian Podcast. At Faith Christian, our purpose is to help people find and follow Jesus. For more information about Faith Christian, check out our website, fccnp.org, or stop by on a Sunday morning. We'd love to meet you. Now we hope you enjoy this recent teaching from Faith Christian Church. Let's pray together. Father, this morning we gather together. We gather with you. We ask for your presence to be with us, that we would know your comfort, your peace, and experience your love. Father, as we open the pages of Scripture today, we do so because we need you to speak into every part of our lives, even the parts that hurt. So would we hear you today? Guide my words as you speak. In the name of Jesus, amen. You can be seated. Let me begin this morning with uh, a couple of thank yous. Uh, first, thanks to uh, the many of you, dozen or so of you, who uh, came and helped last Sunday uh, get our building decorated for Christmas. As I said last week, we did that early uh, this year um, because this afternoon uh, we are, our building is hosting a, a service for our community hospice, um, a service of remembrance, and uh, we wanted to uh, have our place just looking ship shape for, for that service and for the many who will be here today as a part of their grieving process. Um, so thank you for those who came and helped. Um, as a part of that, um, just after the service today, we need to bring up some more of our chairs. Uh, we need more seats and then we have set up today for that, uh, that service this afternoon. So if you can stick around um, for a little while after the service and, and help us get the, the chairs up the elevator and set up, um, uh, Gene and Dave Cox, they've got to kind of know what we're going to do. You can see them and uh, they'll point you in the right direction. And, uh, and we'll know, uh, know how we can get this place ready for that, uh, that hospice service this afternoon. Um, also, on very personal note, um, I need to, to say thank you to so many of you. And this is on behalf of my wife, uh, Megan. Many of you know that uh, Megan is the uh, choir director at the Tuskegee Valley Schools. And um, she wanted me to say to you, church, thank you for the many of you who have reached out this week. Um, she can't respond to all of you. Um, but thanks for the text, the Facebook messages, the phone calls. Uh, so many of you have, have checked on her uh, through me, through Brian, uh, through other parts of our church. Um, your love and concern has been felt. It's indeed, uh, it's, I wrote the words, it's been a tough week, but it's, it's been an impossible week. Um, the tragedy that has struck our community, um, our families, our friends, um, there's not words. And yet here I am in front of you today with supposed to have some words. Um, what, what, do you, what, do you, what do you preach about when your, your family's grieving, your friends are grieving, your community's grieving? Oh yeah, and it's Thanksgiving. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm just a little, pull, I'm pull back the curtain a little bit for you. Usually the Sunday before Thanksgiving, I, not that it's not important, but it's, it's a fluff Sunday. We talk about Thanksgiving and, and how grateful we are to God, and it gets you in the mood for celebrating Thanksgiving, and it's different this year. Everything's different this year. So what do you talk about? Well, when sorrow comes, I turn to the pages of Scripture. 
I know many of you do too. And so often this week, my mind came again and again to the words of the psalm writer in Psalm 23. Can I just share those with you? The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the, path, the right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell house of the Lord forever. I want to talk about this psalm today because this psalm talks about eternity and it talks about feasting with God. At some point in your life, you've probably heard some preacher, maybe even the one standing before you today, say something along these lines. God doesn't always give you what you want, but he does always give you what you need. What I love about the end of Psalm 23 is David is talking about what we need. All throughout this psalm, David uses this imagery of God as our shepherd, a leader, a protector. David's readers in the, in, in the ancient culture, they would have understand, uh, understood what that meant. The, they, they would have been familiar much more than you and I are of what a shepherd is and looked like and did. But I think it's important for us to remember that David, the guy who wrote this, he was a shepherd. He wasn't just talking about something that he had heard about or read about on Facebook. He was talking about something he had lived. When he says, the Lord is my shepherd. And as a good shepherd, David knew that there were enemies to sheep. They're defenseless. And in that part of the world, bears and wolves and lions and thieves were a danger to the flock. But there was also this small little enemy that shepherds also feared, maybe even more than the big animals, because they could see big danger coming. Move the flock, protect the sheep. But the little enemy for the sheep in this part of the world is a little snake, a little adder snake, a little brown venomous snake that lives in the ground. And sheep, while they're grazing, would have their heads down, eating the grass, not paying attention, and these little adder snakes would just kind of pop up and nip the sheep on the nose. And so shepherds, in order to protect their sheep, would take oil and they rub the oil on the noses of their sheep or they would maybe pour it all, all over the sheep's head and the smell of the oil would keep the snakes from biting the sheep and if the sheep did get bit that oil would also be used with some medicinal purposes qualities that would help prevent or fight infection and protect the sheep so David the shepherd, talking about the good shepherd, says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. 
you anoint my head with oil. So the picture here is that God not only prepares a table for, for you and your enemies, get your mind wrapped around that, where not only you can feast, but also you can be protected at the table from your enemies. Back, way back earlier in the Old Testament, when Moses and the Israelites are camped in the desert, they're, they've fled Egypt, they are wandering the desert, waiting to enter the promised land. It's a, it's a weird story that is included in the book of Exodus. But in this weird little story, snakes come into the camp where all the million or so Israelites are camped, waiting, moving through, wandering through the, the, the wilderness. And these snakes come into the camp and they begin biting people. And God tells Moses, make a snake, hoist it up on a pole, and tell the people if they look at the snake, I'll save them from the snake bite. Well, when we get to the New Testament, the, the writers of the New Testament take that Old Testament story about the snakes and Moses and the pole, and they apply that same story to the life of Jesus. And they say, anyone who looks to Jesus, as Jesus is raised up on a pole, on a cross, anyone who looks to him will be saved from the snake bite of sin. What Moses understood and what Jesus understood and what we need to understand is that we have a very real enemy. A very real enemy who poses a very real threat. The Bible describes the Satan with similar imagery. Snake, dragons, scorpions. These were the, the worst things that they could think of in the biblical context. The, the, worst, the worst imagery they could come up with. So pick your poison. The, 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 the truth of this threat is that Satan doesn't want you to live. That's his goal. But the opposite of this enemy that doesn't want you to live is a God who is living. That's one of his names. He's the living God, which means he wants you to live. And so deep in my heart, one of my biggest goals in preaching, not just on a Sunday like today, but every time I stand on this platform before you, one of my biggest goals is to help you understand with a, with a high degree of certainty that God has saved you. That God has rescued, past tense, you. And that God is rescuing, present tense, rescuing you right now, keeping you safe. And then ultimately, one day, redemption will be finalized. And he will rescue you once and for all from the snake bite of sin and from the snake himself. Sometimes even I'm surprised by God's timing. As I sat in my, at my desk Wednesday morning, working on trying to come up with some words that I don't have, to say today, and I'm writing this part about the snake and the sheep, 
I get a text from my sister. She's a professor at a Bible college. She teaches New Testament and languages and worship. And she sent me a piece. She goes, I, I'm scheduled to read this to my class this week. I thought you'd like to see it. So if you allow me, I'm just going to read it because these are not my words. So this is from a, a lady by the name of Carolyn Ahrens. Ahrens is her last name, sorry. Carolyn Ahrens. And she writes a little long, so stick with me. She says, as a kid, I loved missionary Sundays when missionaries on furlough would bring special reports in place of a sermon. Sometimes they wore exotic foreign clothing. They almost always showed a tray of slides documenting their adventures. If they were from a dangerous enough land, the youth in our congregation would emerge from our Sunday stupor and listen intently. There is one visit I've never forgotten. The missionaries there at church that morning were a married couple stationed in what appeared to be a particularly steamy jungle. I'm sure they gave a full report on churches planted or commitments made or translations of Scripture begun. I don't remember much of that. What has always stayed with me is the story they told about the snake. One day, they told us, an enormous snake, much longer than a man, slithered its way right through their front door and into the kitchen of their simple home. Terrified, <laughs> yeah, they ran outside and searched frantically for a local who might know what to do. A machete-welding neighbor came to the rescue, calmly marching into their house and decapitating the giant snake with one clean chop. The neighbor reemerged triumphant and assured the missionaries that the reptile had been defeated. But there was a catch, he warned. It was going to take a while for the snake to realize that it was dead. A snake's neurology and blood flow are such that it can take considerable time for it to stop moving even after decapitation. And so for the next several hours, the missionaries were forced to wait outside while the snake thrashed about their home, smashing furniture and flailing against walls and windows, wreaking havoc until its body finally understood that it no longer had a head. Sweating in the heat, they had felt frustrated and a little sickened, but also grateful that the snake's rampage would not last forever. At some point in their waiting, they told us, they had a mutual epiphany. I leaned in with the rest of the congregation, queasy and fascinated. Do you see it? Asked the husband. Satan is a lot like that big old snake. He's already been defeated. He just doesn't know it yet. So in the meantime, he's going to do some damage. But never forget that he's a goner. She continues, the story captured our imaginations then because it was graphic and gory, a stark contrast to the normally genteel sermonizing we were used to receiving. But the story haunts me because I have come to believe it as an accurate picture of the universe. We are in the thrashing time, a season characterized by our pervasive capacity to do violence to each other and to ourselves. The temptation is to despair. 
We have to remember, though, that it won't last forever. Jesus has already crushed the serpent's head. Recently, she writes, I I heard a message from theologian Gary Dido that got me thinking about that snake. Dito challenges the tendency that many of us have to be dualist, imagining God and Satan as equal foes deadlocked in mortal combat. To be certain, Dito acknowledges, there is an immeasurable amount of evil in our world, but compared with God's love and power, all the evil in the universe doesn't cover the head of a pen. Love wins. Satan doesn't stand a chance. Thus, we wrestle with the brokenness that plagues our world. And ourselves. We do so not with grim resignation, but with hopeful defiance. We face both our addictions and our afflictions, not with a faint, white-knuckled hope that someday we will be healed, but rather with an assurance that we are living slowly but surely in the healing already obtained on the cross. There is still a waiting, she writes. In some cases, the healing may not come in fullness until we are face-to-face with our victor, but it comes guaranteed. I've been trying to figure out what all of this means with respect to the way that we deal with evil and sorrow and injustice in our world. In linear human time, perhaps the safest thing to do is batten down the hatches and wait somewhere secure until the thrashing is over. But one of the mysteries of living in God's time rather than our own is that although the end of the story has already been determined, somehow he is still using us to write it. Because Jesus lives in us through his spirit, we are called not just to anticipate the overcoming, but also to to be a part of bringing it to fruition. And so she, she concludes... And so we are called to fight poverty and oppression and greed and malice in the world and in ourselves. We are invited to live in light of the reality that greater by far is the living God who is within us than the dead snake thrashing around the world. I think this is what Paul means when he writes in 1 Corinthians, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? And so he has anointed you, not just your head, your your whole life, with the power of his Holy Spirit so that you can sing with joy and with confidence what David sings in Psalm 23, you anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. David doesn't say my cup is half empty. He doesn't say my cup is half full. This isn't mere optimism. David says my cup, which which is a metaphor for his heart, my cup overflows. What's he talking about? When we read the Bible, you begin to see a pattern. God doesn't just give the calf. God gives the fattened calf. God doesn't just give the robe. He gives the best robe. He doesn't just give us joy. He gives us unspeakable joy. He doesn't just give us peace. He gives us peace that passes understanding. God doesn't give anything in small measure. Your cup, when you're in his presence, when you're in his word, when you're with his people, your cup, you feel it, it overflows. 
In the Old Testament, there's this remarkable story that we love to teach our children about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these three men who are thrown into a fiery furnace for what they believe about God. And God saves them and protects them, and they don't just walk out of the fiery furnace unburned. They walk out of that furnace, their clothes don't even smell like smoke. In the New Testament, Peter and John heal a crippled man waiting by the temple gate. He didn't walk away with a slight limp. The text says he was running and leaping and praising God. His cup was overflowing. David, the author of this psalm, he doesn't just knock Goliath down. We don't always teach this part to our kids. I understand why. But do you remember the end of the story? He doesn't just knock him down. David, the shepherd boy with the sling in his hand, puts, on, puts a foot on Goliath's chest and holds up his head victorious, confident. So when David writes this next sentence, we have a different feel for it. We, we understand where he's coming from. He says, man, if I can do this with God's help, then surely goodness and love are going to follow me all the days of my life. David didn't write the word maybe, he didn't scratch his head and go, mm, gee, I hope so. Crossing my fingers. No, no, no. Definitively, absolutely, surely, goodness and love will follow me. We talk a lot about us following God. But Scripture also teaches us, did you know this? Scripture also teaches us that God follows us. When you walk into a meeting, goodness and love follow you into that conversation. When you lay your head on your pillow at night, goodness and love lay down with you. And not just some of the time. Not just when you're acting right or when you deserve it. David writes, surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. Meaning that God doesn't just go wherever you go. God goes wherever you go, whenever you go there. You're never alone. You're never lacking. You're never under-resourced. I think I've shown you this picture before of this reporter at a baseball game a few years back. She stopped before the game, took a selfie while the players were on the field taking batting practice. She's oblivious to the fact. She has no idea how close she is to getting hit by a baseball until she looks at the picture. You know, a lot of times I hear God getting blamed for all the bad things that happen in the world. I hear people say this all the time. I get it. I understand that vantage point, but I also wonder just how often are we protected from pain that we don't even know about? How often in the day-to-day -day God spares us from heartache and despair and disaster and we don't even know it? I caught myself in a very introspective moment this week thinking about what I deserve, what I should get, Listen, I got no problem acknowledging this. I'm a sinful man. I've messed up. I've fouled up. I've got a dark heart, dark thoughts kind of person. And so with a heart full of gratitude, I can just say out loud, Father, thank you. Not only for forgiving me, but for forgetting my sins. And it was like he was reminding me. I really do forget. Do forget. It's hard for me to get my head wrapped around. That the all-knowing God chooses not to know. Remember that. God forgets what we remember. Don't ever forget that God forgets. 
It's easy for us to think that God remembers every bad thing we've done, every bad thing we do. That's what Satan, the enemy, the snake, that's what he wants us to think. He wants to hold your head under the water of guilt and shame. He wants to drown you in it. He wants you to believe that God's love and forgiveness has a limit, has a ceiling, has a lid, has a max. You ever had a bird fly into your house? Thrashing about, running into windows and walls. We get them in the building here all the time. And these birds keep crashing into the window thinking that's the sky. I can keep flying, and yet the sky's not there. You ever think a bird thinks to himself, man, I hope I don't run out of sky to fly in? You think a fish thinks, I hope I don't run out of ocean to swim in? As the children of God, we never need to question the capacity, the goodness, and the love of our Father to forgive us. It never runs out. Remember what Scripture teaches us in Psalm 103. It says, as far as the east is from the west. That's the sky picture. Think about that bird. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed your sins from you, and he remembers it no more. Micah 7 gives us an ocean picture. Remember the fish. Once again, you will have compassion on us. You will trample our sins under your feet and throw them into the depths of the ocean. David is reflecting on that. Remembering that God forgets what you remember. Do not ever forget that. Surely goodness and love will follow you all the days of your life. And here's the best line of the, of the entire psalm. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. There's a lot of words in the Bible that I have trouble getting my head wrapped around, but maybe none more so than this word, forever. It's tricky. It's a tricky word because of our understanding of time. Have you ever been engaged in an activity that was so lifeless, so boring, that you kept looking at your watch and it feels like time is standing still? But on the other end of the spectrum, have you ever been engaged in a life-giving activity where you look at your watch and you can't believe how much time has passed? Either extreme, it stands still or it flies by. I'm just curious, how many of you would describe yourself as being a punctual person? Like, you know, you arrive at an event five, ten minutes before the event takes place. How many of you, go ahead and show me, just, you're a punctual person. Some of you are doing this, I like that. How many of you would, would describe yourself the complete opposite? Five to ten minutes late to everything you go to. You're always, right. All right, so all of you punctual people, right now you're looking at the people with their hands up, the late people, and you're like, why, your, your blood pressure's up. Why can't you just get there on time? And the rest of you are like, let's chill, man, lighten up a little bit. I heard a business person say one time, the only trouble with being punctual is that there's no one there to appreciate it. <laughs> Here's the interesting thing about this. We use this word forever a lot. Oh, I was in line at Walmart forever. I was stuck in traffic forever. That dance recital took forever. All of this because of our understanding of time. You ever thought about this? All of our notions, all of our ideas, all of our concepts of time are tied to celestial bodies. 
that seems so far away and so big and so grandiose. Like a 24-hour day is all about the earth's relationship with the sun. A calendar month is all about the lunar cycle, the, the earth's relationship with the moon. A year is all about the earth's relationship with the sun going around it. All of our notions of time are tied to celestial bodies that seem like they are forever away. In the very first chapter of the Bible, the very first chapter of the Bible says this, Then God said, Let lights appear in the sky to separate the day from the night. Let them be signs to mark the seasons, days, and years. God gave us those celestial bodies to govern our day and our nights. That's the first chapter of the Bible. Let me show you a verse from the last chapter of the Bible, Revelation 22. The very end of the Bible, God says, And there will be no night there. He's talking about heaven. There will be no night there. No need for lamps or the sun. For the Lord God will shine on them, and they will reign forever and ever. That's when Jesus comes back. There will be no sun, there will be no moon, for God himself will be our light. What's that mean? <laughs> That means there's coming a time when time as we know it won't exist. At least the confinement of it, the structure of it, the rush of it, the pressure of it, the tick-tock, tick-tock. You want your brain to hurt? Think about it this way philosophically. God invented time to be momentary. Have fun watching the ceiling tonight just trying to figure that one out. Let me put it this way. Whatever food it is that makes you cock your head back and go, oh, wow, that was amazing. Whatever activity, activity it is that makes you feel the most alive. Whatever moment that you share with other people that you love that makes your heart overflow, your cup overflow. That book you can't put down because it's so good, it's speaking to you. Whatever it is that causes you to look at your watch and go, wow, I totally lost track of time. That's what forever and ever and ever are going to be like in the house of the Lord. And we will live. And we will dwell and we will feast and we will be with him forever and ever and ever and it will be good I'm going to invite our communion team to take their places to serve communion I'm going to invite you to join me now around the table of our king and share a feast let me pray for you Lord God, we come now to your feast. You have prepared this table before us. You comfort. You protect. You lead. You love. You forgive. And we celebrate that now as we share together at this table.
with thankful hearts, we feast. Amen. Our communion team are on their way around to serve you these emblems of communion. I invite you to take a stack of those cups as those trays are passed. Hold on to those for just a moment so we can share in this moment of communion together as a body, as a family. The bottom cup has a small piece of bread in it, a little cracker-looking thing. This, for us, is a reminder of the body of Jesus that was broken for us when Jesus was crucified on the cross. The top cup contains some, some grape juice, our symbol, our reminder of the blood of Jesus that establishes a new relationship between God and us, reminding us that our sins are forgiven, that our sins, like the sky, are separated from us as far as the east is from the west. That our sins, like the ocean picture in, in, in Malachi, that our sins are taken from us, stripped from us, and buried in the depths of the ocean. It's a reminder to us that we never run out of God's love. We never run away from his grace. We never, we never do without. For our cup at this feast, it overflows. If this is new to you, you can take a pass on it. You don't have to participate. But every week here at Faith Christian, we share together in this body and this blood. We unite our lives with the, with the body and the blood of Christ. We unite our lives with one another. And we celebrate the love, the mercy, the grace, the peace of our Father. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, as he gathered in an upper room with his disciples to celebrate an important feast, he took bread and broke it. He passed it to them and he said, take and eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. And then Jesus took a cup, prayed a prayer of thanksgiving over it as he passed it to them and said, take and drink, for this is the blood of the new covenant poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. body and the blood of Christ for the people of Christ.